Before we begin with anything, I noticed uh, during our Scripture reading at the very end, there was a slight pause, a hesitation before you said amen, because we ended on what? And He killed all the firstborn? And that was it. Why the pause? So can, I, I want to do this actually before, before we do anything. Can we, can we give a, another very, very hearty amen to Rebecca? She did a wonderful job reading that, reading that Scripture. <laughs> Thank you. I had actually thought when I picked that scripture, and she did read the right verses, um, of asking the person to sing it. It's in the book of Psalms. That's a song somebody wrote. David wrote that song. Kind of an odd, odd song, right, to this list of, of plagues uh, that, God, that God did. So, but of course, I didn't ask to sing. Rebecca, you did an awesome job. Thank you. Exodus. We've been studying the book of Exodus together, and uh, Chad sent me an email a number of weeks ago, a number of months ago, offering a couple different dates uh, to preach, and the one that worked best was this date, but it came with it a task that most preachers wouldn't relish, and that is to preach on the topic of the ten plagues. I've mentioned that to a few people, and they say, what are you preaching about? Oh, the plagues. Oh, that's kind of the reaction I get every time. Oh, oh. What do you do with the ten plagues? But it is a part of Exodus. It's part of the, the Bible record. And as Pastor Chad reminded us last week, all Scripture, right? Second Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is useful. Uh, so we are going to examine that today. Not necessarily what most people think of first as a warm and inviting topic, but uh, we're going to dig into it. Our students, which I got to make sure I don't ignore. Hi, guys. Uh, our students in, in 10th grade have been studying the, the Great Awakenings in history, in church history, and they just this week uh, studied through some of the, uh, we call them fire and brimstone sermons that were delivered during that time, right? You have the most famous one, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's the title of the sermon, and it pictures God holding the sinner by a thin thread over the flames of hell. Any moment, he could cut that string. So, so fear God, right? And when we, uh, when we think of the, the story of the plagues, we could certainly come away with that. Well, let's do this first. Let's pray. Jesus, you are God. You have uh, revealed yourself in so many ways in Scripture. We want to ask your spirit, certainly on me as I preach, uh, and especially on each of our hearts, as we, uh, as we hear what lesson you have for us today uh, from this story. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Uh, thank you for the Sabbath. In your name we pray, amen. So yes, this is a story that, uh, especially if you read it as a cursory reading, a, a quick reading, you, would, uh, you might find yourself in the camp with, with many an atheist today. In fact, this is a story that gives good ammunition, this type of story, to some of our some of our folks today who, who want to show us that God is not real. Take, for example, uh, Richard Dawkins from his book, The God Delusion. Dawkins, one of maybe the most well-known atheists today. He says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a genocidal, pestilential, capriciously malevolent bully. 
strong language. I actually, actually left some things out of that quote, some, some of his stronger language in there. Yeah. Certainly, in the, in the book of Exodus, in the story of the plagues, we could come away with a reading of God as someone who wants to hurt, someone who wants to harm. But that's not the God we know of in the rest of Scripture. So is this a God who is different at different times? What do we do with all of this? Let's turn to the book of Exodus. God is big enough. God is powerful. He certainly is a sovereign God. Let's look in Exodus chapter 9. Let's see what God says about this himself, first of all. Let's not, uh, let's not beat around the bush. We'll see what God says about why he sends the plagues. Exodus 9, we'll look at verse 14 through 16. This is, uh, this is well into the story of the plagues. This is the fifth plague. Uh, sorry, this is the seventh plague. This is the plague of hail. And uh, verse 14 says this. I'm reading from the ESV. He says, For this time I'll send all of my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you. I could have struck your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I see, I see three distinct reasons God says he's doing this. Did you catch them? Verse 14, he says, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. There's none like me in all the earth. In verse 16, he says, I'm going to show you my power. And immediately after that, he, he gives the reason, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Those three things, that you may know there's none like me to show you his power and so that his name can be proclaimed in all the earth. Since the dawn of time, since creation, it's been humanity's desire to know God. In fact, God created us with a, I like to call it a God-sized hole. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a space, it's a place that only God can fill, right? And he created us for human relationships too. From the dawn of time, we've wanted to know him and it's been his desire to reveal himself to us. But of course, from the moment the gates of Eden were closed, sin drove in a wedge of confusion, misunderstanding, and mistrust. Throughout history, we've had, we have inserted in alternatives into God's rightful place. We've wanted to know God, but sin has gotten in the way. We've inserted alternatives into God's rightful place. These idols, that's what the Bible calls them, these, these things we put in that spot, right? To fill the place where God is supposed to be. These idols in Egypt were river gods. They were the shape of frogs, they were the shape of beetles, they were the shape of cows. They were gods of healing, gods of rebirth. They were gods of the sun. But in the plagues, God will remind us that there is none like him. To Egypt specifically, he showed himself superior to every single one of their replacements for him. And that's an interesting study in its own right, to see how each one of those plagues 
counteracts and defeats the gods of Egypt. Well, let's pause to consider this because I have a heart. You have a heart. Do you have a God-sized hole in your heart that only He can fill? This is an important question we have to ask ourselves. What are you putting in that spot? What replacements have I put in that spot for God? What idols do I have in my life? And when we read the story of the plagues, what we recognize is that when God reasserts Himself and says, that's my spot, let's take that idol out, it's uncomfortable. The change is uncomfortable. The plagues aptly illustrate that, right? There's an uncomfortable change that happens. And I want to focus on that today, that change of heart that we have. It's a neat story to see this. So certainly the plagues are uncomfortable. I decided we're, we're not going to take the time to look at all nine plagues. We are going to have another sermon coming up about that final and last tenth plague and the Passover and all that goes with it. Um, but to go through all ten plagues, we'd need um, a good week's unit, lots of note-taking, all those sorts of things. So notice they're not smiling when I said that. Um, but here are the plagues in brief. Number one, the river turns to blood. Number two, frogs come out of the river and go into the homes all over the land. Number three, lice or little gnats. Uh, where I'm from, we, we had a different word for these, these little, these little insignificant, can't see them. Uh, is anybody from the far north? There was a word we used. We, we called them noceums. You've heard that term before, noceums. They get in your eyes, they get in your ears, they get and they bite. They're, they're, they're annoying, they're painful. They can about drive you crazy. A quick story. When, uh, when I was a young man up in the, up in these, uh, up in the northern part of Michigan, there was a, uh, there was a criminal. He, he, he murdered somebody in our community. We lived out. Not many people around liked to play outside. But, but this gentleman had committed a crime, and he ran off into the woods. So the police went after him, trying to find him. The FBI came in. Everybody's looking for him, right? Uh, nobody could find him, so of course... We weren't allowed to go outside and play. It was a big deal. I still remember this very vividly. For a week, they looked for him. He was a Native American gentleman, and they figured, well, he's, he's gone into the woods. He knows his way around. They're not going to find him. And so they actually, they actually kind of gave up after one week. They left two or three agents to try to see if they could find the trail again, but then they left, which, of course, all the parents were worried, you know, children outside. One week after he ran into the woods, he voluntarily turned himself in to the nearest police station. And just no reason, nobody had found him. He just walked in, gave himself up. They said, why did he do that? Apparently what had happened is this was early summer. This was no see him time. Uh, and he had literally gone mad one week in the woods with these, with these no seems. Uh, it nearly drove him crazy. He was willing to turn himself in, go to prison rather than suffer the pain and the annoyance of these lice. Yeah, these plagues are, these plagues are painful. They're uncomfortable. Plague, on, plague of flies, plague of livestock, plague of boils, plague of hail, locusts. The ninth plague is a plague of darkness for three days, so thick that you can feel it. And of course, the last plague is a plague of death. So I'm going through the plagues, and I'm, I'm not convincing myself that 
Charles Dawkins, uh, the Richard Dawkins is wrong. Why is, a, why is a good God, the God that we know in Scripture, giving these plagues? As I was, uh, as I was considering this, it, it hit me, it occurred to me that this idea of a God who holds people accountable, who sends bad things, that actually, I, I noticed it appealing to me, and that, that startled me a little bit. Is that a view of God you've ever, that you've ever wanted? A God who does something like this? Here's, uh, here's some lyrics. It, it reminded me of the lyrics of a song I used to listen to, a Christian song, uh, back in the, uh, the 90s. This was a popular song called, If I Were You. The first verse says this, If I were you, speaking of God, if I were you, if I ran this place, there wouldn't be no mercy, there wouldn't be no grace. People that wander off and go astray, I would make real sure that they would pay. That's what I'd do if I were you. That's actually a cry of the human heart. David made that cry in Psalms. Lord, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Why do people get away with such bad things? Have you ever prayed that prayer to God? They deserve something different. They don't deserve good. I think that's uh, something that we sometimes want. We want a God who will stand up and look evil in the face and act. We want a God who will treat people like we deserve until, until I realize that, oh, that's what I deserve too. Until I see that that's also the condition of my heart, right? This is what we all deserve. Then, our, then our, what we ask, what we want of God is something very different. So God does send his power in this story, but it's not a power of an oppressor. It's not the power of a vindictive judge, someone who loves pestilence. It's something else altogether, and it is in the story of the plagues but it isn't the kind of power that God's critics try to describe. It's a power that changes hearts. It's the power that we see all through Scripture. It is, in fact, God himself working. When God shows up, hearts are changed. There's not a, there's not a question of if a heart will be changed. When God shows up, hearts are changed. But in Scripture, we see many, many, many stories, and I, and I really think, I didn't go through all of Scripture and, and check every story, but I think we see this in almost every story in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar, a heart that was changed, right? From a, from a tyrant who oppresses God's people to somebody who humbly admits that God is God, right? Saul, in the book of Acts, from somebody who persecutes God's people to somebody who proclaims the grace and mercy of God. The disciples, somebody who changed from confused, uneducated followers into steadfast, confident missionaries. Well, how many of the disciples changed for the better? I'm a teacher. How many of the disciples changed for the better? Eleven disciples. 
Judas, did Judas experience a heart change? Kind of a trick question. Did Judas experience a heart change? He did. He did. His heart was also changed. He came face to face with the power of God in the flesh. And his heart was changed, but his heart was hardened. How do you do that? How do you go more time with Jesus and come away with a harder heart? All hearts are changed when they come into the power of God. And I believe that one of the most interesting things, at least as I studied these, these plagues, was to notice the contrast of two changed hearts in this story. Pharaoh, of course, is the one who stands out to us most strongly in the story. You can't read through the story of the Exodus, uh, the story of the plagues, and not be struck with the obstinance of Pharaoh's heart. Just stubborn, hard, right? He begins as a man who, who really has not encountered God at all. He hasn't, he hasn't had an experience with God. But he comes face to face with that power. The privilege of coming face to face with that power. Let's, uh, let's go back to Exodus. I want to I show you uh, how it is that God shows up to Pharaoh. I think this is, uh, this is important as we consider how God approaches us and how he changes us. So let's look at uh, chapter 8. This is the second plague, the plague of frogs. We'll look at uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It might seem to us that if God's intention was simply to free his people and punish Egypt, he would have simply showed up to do that, right? I'm going to take my people, and you're going to receive your punishment. But that's not what God does. We have this long experience, drawn out over some time, actually, of the plagues. God said his purpose was to show his power so that they would know that there is none like him. So Exodus 8, verse 1. Here's the first, the first piece. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go so that they might serve me. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. The first thing that God always does is he sends a messenger. Thank God. Praise God. He sends a messenger. And with that messenger, he sends a very, very clear explanation of his purpose. You can find this same exact pattern in every single plague, and you can find this same exact pattern in Scripture when God is ready to act. He sends us a messenger, and he's very clear about what his expectations are. This is what I want to have happen. Look in verse 2. He sends a messenger. He's, he clearly shows us his expectations. In verse 2, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will call, excuse me, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. God sends a messenger. He clearly outlines his expectations, and he very clearly outlines what will happen in the case of disobedience. Is that a fair God? Is that a God who's being fair? Is it more fair of a parent to simply show up into the room? I'll speak this way. Is it more fair of your parent to just show up and give you a discipline, a punishment? Or is it more fair of them to come in and say, here's what I want you to do, and if you don't do it, here's what you can expect? Which one's more fair? 
Second one, of course. We understand that intrinsically, right? This is how God interacts with us. It's how he comes to us in his power. So Pharaoh has this opportunity to see God, to understand who God is, and to act. But the way that Pharaoh responds is increasingly hard. And uh, again, we we really just don't have enough time to go through every plague and, and see the details of all of this. But the very first plague, Pharaoh is, is so unimpressed with who God is that he simply turns his back and walks away. That's in chapter 7, verse 23. He sees the Nile turn to blood, he turns and walks away. Doesn't care, doesn't impress him. The second plague, he decides to ask Moses and Aaron to take it away. But as soon as it's gone, he hardens his heart. By the third plague, the magicians, those who are trying to replicate what God has done. They've admitted by the third plague, okay, this is, this is beyond us. This is God's power. Pharaoh, you should, you should be pretty serious about this, but not Pharaoh. Hardens his heart still further. And so on and so forth. He begins to test God. He begins to take, make bargains with God. Sure, you can go, but you're going to do it my way, God. You're going to... You're going to stay in the country and worship him. Or you can go, but you're going to leave the women and children and flocks. You're going to do it my way. He becomes more and more obstinate, more and more stubborn, more and more. I was trying to think, what is in Pharaoh's heart? What is in that spot where God belongs? And the only thing I can come up with is Pharaoh, <laughs> right? Pharaoh, his pride, his, his way. It's my way, not God's way. And that certainly makes sense with Pharaoh. He considered himself God, right? He was God to the people. The more he hardens his heart, of course, we know the story, the more determined he is to continue hardening his heart. He goes from a man concerned about the welfare of his nation. We might be critical of him, but he was worried about economics, right? I mean, if he lets all his slaves go, what happens to the economics? What happens to the country? That's initially his, his entry point into why he says no. But by the end, that's out the window. His country's ruined. There's no economics. There's no crops left. There's no livestock left. But even in the face of that, he says no to God. He even feigns repentance. As we get into the last plagues, he says, I'm a sinner. My nation is wrong. But as soon as the plague is gone... He says, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to follow you, Lord. Have you ever wondered what, uh, I'm thinking out loud, this is not in my notes, that could be dangerous. Have you ever wondered, what if Pharaoh had softened his heart? Would the exodus have been twice as large? Was there mercy and grace available for the Egyptians? There was. God in his power was offering mercy and grace to the Egyptians. As we get into the plague of the livestock, Moses actually warns them, go ahead, Egyptians, put your livestock into the barns. Right? And we know that when, when Israel left Egypt, there was a great mixed multitude. Many Egyptians did go with them. From chapter 3 and Steps to Christ... There are many who fail to understand the true nature of repentance. 
Multitudes sorrow that they have sinned, and they even make an outward reformation because they fear that their wrongdoing will bring suffering upon themselves. But this is not repentance in the Bible sense. They lament the suffering rather than the sin. Pharaoh, when suffering under the judgments of God, acknowledged his sin in order to escape further punishment. But he returned to his defiance of heaven as soon as the plagues were stayed. They lamented the results of sin, but did not sorrow for the sin itself. In the language of Jesus, you remember the, uh, the parable of the sower? Man goes out and sows seed. Uh, where, does, where, does the, uh, where does the seed fall? Just in certain spots or everywhere in that parable? Falls everywhere. God's power is given to all. Uh, which, which of those different soils, you remember the parable? Which of those different soils is Pharaoh's heart? Is it the fertile ground? Is it the thorny ground? Or is it the hard, stony ground? I think it's that hard, stony ground. No sooner is the seed sown, takes root, and immediately withers and dies. Or in another parable of Christ, another statement of Christ, John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Pharaoh did experience the power of God. His power is long-suffering and patient. It's not willing that any should patient that any should perish. Excuse me. His power does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Instead, it prefers that they turn from their wicked ways and live. God's power is slow to anger. God's power abounds in steadfast love. His power forgives iniquity and transgression and by no means clears the guilty. I've been saying the power of God. This is God. This is who God is. It's not the way he works here in a different way over there. It is God. That is God's power. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's the one we're most typically struck with in the story, but there is another character in the story, a major character, and that's Moses. In fact, we're following Moses through Exodus, right? So just think back with me to Exodus chapter 3. This is Moses. He's been out, uh, out of Egypt. He's been kicked out of Egypt. Who does he encounter in Exodus chapter 3? He sees this thing burning up on the mountainside. He encounters God, right? God says, I have a task for you. You're going to go into Egypt. You're going to free my people. And Moses says, all right, I got it. I'm on it. Actually, he doesn't quite say that, does he? He says, it's me? I'm, no, not me. I don't, I'm, I'm afraid, right? I got kicked out of Egypt. I killed somebody there. I, not me. I can't, I, I can't speak, Lord. Not me. So God says, okay, okay, we'll send Aaron your brother, Moses, Moses. Moses is connected to the vine. But in this story, there is a deep change in the heart of Moses. I want you to see this because probably as we're connecting to this story, most of us are not relating to Pharaoh. That's my guess, right? Most of us are not quite where he was at, so hard. We might relate a little more with Moses. 
Yeah, God, I'm on his side, I'm connected, but timid, afraid. And as you get into the story, Moses and Aaron show up, they, they announce their first, uh, you know, their first thing to Pharaoh, let our people go. Moses says, I, who, who are you guys, who is God? So they do the first miracle, right? They throw the staff on the ground, it becomes a snake. Whose staff on the ground? Aaron's staff on the ground. See a bunch of people turning their Bibles to check me on that. Aaron's staff on the ground. The first plague, Aaron's staff over the Nile. The second plague, Aaron's staff. The third plague, Aaron's staff. Where's Moses? Moses is supposed to lead God's people out. But everybody's coming into contact with God's power, including Moses and Aaron. So it's a really interesting study to go through and see the change that occurs in the heart of Moses. He starts out timid and afraid and needing someone to speak in his place. But as the plagues go on, as we, we turn a corner at the fourth plague, suddenly we're presented with Moses. Moses is changing. It becomes Moses who speaks. It's Moses who begins to stretch his rod. It's Moses who, who gains some confidence. They're standing in front of the man who has the power of life and death in the earth. As we get into the fourth and fifth plague, we see Moses answering Pharaoh back. Pharaoh says, do it this way. Moses says, I don't think we will. That's a bold step to take in front of a man who has the power to put you to death, right? He begins to show forth God's power. There is a change that comes over Moses' heart as well. Same power, different change. No longer is Moses timid and afraid. Instead, the power of God is producing in him a fruit. He is connected to the vine, and as the Holy Spirit works in power, Moses becomes bold for God. So back to that, uh, that statement that I made earlier. Many of you caught that I was reading some statements from Scripture about who God is. In fact, it's, the, it's what Moses saw just a little while after this experience. Moses leads the people into the wilderness. God takes them up onto the mountain, gives them the Ten Commandments, right? And Moses says, I want to see you, God. I want to be filled. God says, well, let's do it this way. He puts Moses in the rock, puts his hand over it, passes backwards, right? And what does Moses see? When God passes before Moses, do you remember how he describes what God looked like? This is what he saw. A God who is slow to anger, a God abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. That's what God looked like. God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, in transgression. Those who persist in rebellion and refuse to connect to the vine experience a change, a change of hardening. Those who connect themselves to the vine also experience a change, an emboldened change for God. 
And the two hearts of Moses and Pharaoh illustrate this, I believe. They say that the sun can have the same effect. I'm sorry, the sun can have a different effect on two different things. Uh, they say that the sun can harden clay, right? But it can soften wax. Same sun can soften clay, soften wax and harden clay. In the story of the plagues, I'm confronted by the sovereign power of God. I'm reminded that He is God and that He will be known. I'm also reminded that His rightful place is here in my heart. I'm reminded that it is uncomfortable when He reclaims His spot, when He removes those idols that I've put in my place. I did some introspection as I was thinking about what to preach on this. What is in my heart? What's in that space? What's the idol in my life? And I thought through the different, the different things in my life that are distractions, the things that take up my time. But do you know what I, you know what I ended up at? You know what I recognized as the, the biggest idol in that God-shaped hole for me? It was me. It's my pride. It wasn't the things so much as it was me saying, that's more important than you, God. It was me. And that hurts when God comes in and says, we need to take you out and put me in. That can be difficult because I kind of like me. <laughs> I kind of like me. I see that God does not, is not excuse me, I see that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, but instead he acts graciously towards us providing us with every opportunity to let him in. And finally, I'm challenged by this contrast that I see between Pharaoh and Moses. I'm challenged to put away my selfish ambitions and my selfish fears and allow God's power to work in me so that I can bear fruit for him. Let's pray. Jesus, you've provided us with innumerable examples in Scripture of your power at work. Some of them are striking in their majesty and their sovereignty. Some of them are, are much smaller, that still small voice. But we know, Lord, and we want to praise you for the fact that you are sovereign and that you are long-suffering and patient, merciful, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, we love you for that. Come into our hearts Remove what it is that stands in the place of you and let us like Moses or like Nebuchadnezzar or like the disciples, let our hearts be softened and open to you and not hardened. As Hebrews 3 says, Lord, let, us, let not our hearts be hardened as in the days of the Israelites. Let them be softened. We thank you for being that God. We praise you and lift you up today. In your name we pray these things. Amen.